Hi, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix, Name Drop Edition. I'm your host, Christy Totten. Name Drop is all about the fascinating people in, around, and from San Diego. My guest today is Dr. Brad Perkins. Dr. Perkins is the Chief Medical Officer at Carius, which is a non-invasive blood test that can detect more than 1,000 pathogens at once. In the past, he worked at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It was there he studied anthrax and was also in charge of innovation. I spoke to Dr. Perkins recently about monkeypox and its chance of becoming endemic, and we chatted a little more about his background. Here's our conversation. Hi, Dr. Perkins. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I guess my first question for you is, why are you interested in infectious diseases? How did you get involved in this field? You know, one of humanity's greatest stories is the doubling of human life expectancy over the last, people counted differently, but over certainly the last 100 to 200 years, which is a spectacular achievement. And, and that's what attracted me initially into working on infectious diseases. Um, and I think, um, I think a lot of the lessons that have learned, been learned from infectious diseases um, during that transition and extension of life um, are applicable to further improvements in, in human health and longevity. And, and so I've just found it, you know, I've been doing this for more than 30 years now. I've found it endlessly fascinating um, and also highly leveraged. If you can solve problems to, to, to decrease the occurrence of these infections at population level, it's hard to, it's hard to think of, of things that you can do that are more highly leveraged than that. Yeah, I too am so amazed at the growth in our longevity. Um, I mean, at best, how long do you think humans might live in the future? The, the well, this is one of the one of the learnings of the last several decades that the work is not likely to be done with infectious diseases anytime soon. This will be an ongoing human battle, um, likely for for our you know. The, the total of our existence. I do think many of the lessons that we will learn in that battle with, with infectious organisms can be leveraged to extend beyond infectious diseases to chronic diseases. Um, and what the upper boundary um, is likely to be is I think pure speculation at this point. But I think it's substantially longer than what we're currently uh, living. And if you just look at the number of people that are 100 years uh, or older now compared to 20 or 50 years ago, I mean, that's really all the evidence you need, I believe, to, to um, suggest that we can continue to push, push that boundary uh, outward. Well, studying infectious diseases as long as you have, um, were you expecting a pandemic like COVID or was it somewhat of a surprise to your community as well? Um, we did expect this. Um, and certainly for my tenure at CDC, um, this was a rising cause of anxiety and concern 
And, and to some level, as I suggested, after the anthrax attacks following 9-11, there was fairly intensive preparation um, um, to prepare for what, what were thought to be the most likely causes of epidemics. Um, one interesting observation is that most of the um, concern centered around influenza um, based on past history and based on the mutability of, of that virus and, and probably not enough attention to the, the march of, of um, um, you know, SARS-1 and, and other related coronaviruses um, uh, as, as a major global scale threat. Um, and, you know, um, it is pretty clear that, that if we, if we're going to get serious about pandemic prevention or early reaction, um, we have to be much better at, at exploring and monitoring the animal and human interface of infectious diseases. And that's quite a challenging thing to do. We're, we're, we're really still in the toddler or early walking stage monitoring diseases in humans. We, we, are, we are very um, remedial in our capability to monitor um, infections in animals at this point. And you know, from my perspective, that's going to have to be a major focus if we hope to become better prepared for pandemics. Interesting. Do you see that changing now? There's some talk, um, and I think some sophisticated people are having those conversations. I don't see any large-scale investments in that in that effort at this point. As you mentioned, you worked at the CDC for many years, including on the anthrax investigation related to 9-11. Can you tell me more about your role there? Yes. So um, after the Gulf War, a number of us at, at CDC became very concerned about the press re reports of, of bioterrorism threats in the United States. So there was a small program that, that received some early funding um, um, uh, at CDC to reestablish programs for major biothreat agents. And this was quite controversial at CDC um, because most of the capability for the classic organisms that would be used in bioterrorism threats, most capability had been, had been um, uh, let go essentially at CDC. And um, Bacillus anthracis, the cause of anthrax, is a good example. And so we picked a number of high threat agents um, to begin to rebuild capacity um, at CDC. This is in the late 90s. Um, and um, um, we actually did, we did a reasonable job um, building a network of public health laboratories that have the ability to identify these agents, including Bacillus anthracis, rapidly identify them uh, and do it in a high quality way. Um, I think still when it, when the, so I led the epidemiologic investigation, received the phone call from Florida about the first case. 
Um, I had been thinking about, I led the group that was responsible for Bacillus anthracis, anthrax, and many other threat agents. We had been thinking about, about response a lot. Um, it was still quite shocking um, to have a, a case of anthrax in the United States when we had not seen a case in 30 or more years. Um, and having it occur right after 9-11, of course, was, was um, very dramatic. And um, um, so we, we took it quite seriously at CDC. The, the index case um, um, lived in Palm Beach, Florida. He had traveled to North Carolina. We sent large teams of epidemiologists to North Carolina, where this individual had been and to his home and workplace in, in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. Turned out he worked at the publisher of the National Enquirer, which of course, you know, was, was uh, again, sort of a different shock. Um, I led both of the investigations and we, we immediately found, um, and this is very fortunate, we immediately found that um, anth anthrax spores were, were um, found throughout the workplace. So, um, you know, it's a bad day at work when the CDC arrives in hazmat suits and tells you, you will, you will need to leave because um, we found anthrax spores, you know, all over the mailroom. We found them at the desk of the index case suggesting that he had opened a letter that contained anthrax spores. Um, the first, it, affected individual died. And of course, we identified a variety of, of, of other cases. Um, one of the interesting things is that the historical experience with anthrax was that anyone that got infected would die. And, and um, the first case did die. And of course, the mortality rate was high. But with contemporary antibiotics, um, many people uh, a number of people got infected, but but um, survived, which was 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 something. Some people um, didn't believe it was anthrax if they survived. So that was that was quite encouraging. Um, and of course, there were multiple other attacks um, in Washington D.C., uh, Senator Daschle's office, and in New York City. Um, in cases in Connecticut, sort of in a in a series of of um, different outbreaks that eventually we found were associated with different letter attacks in in various parts of the country. Um, it was quite dramatic to be part of it. I was very worried about. I had a large team made up of law enforcement and eventually FBI and public health people. I was very worried that they might be attacked um, in some way with with bombs or or you know subsequent letter attacks. Um, so I was very concerned about them and remain so throughout the investigation. Um, it would, turned out to be the largest investigation that CDC had ever done up to that point. There were more, more than two thousand people deployed um, to various sites um, during during the investigation. So it was, it was quite, quite dramatic. In terms of impact, it wasn't the most impactful thing I've ever done because 
because the number of people, although significant, were, was relatively small, but it had quite a quite a emotional impact on CDC on um, on the country, I believe, and and um, and and also it was very controversial at CDC because all of us are physicians that went into think think went into public health and if you were working on infectious diseases um you're thinking well i'm i'm here to prevent naturally occurring infectious diseases not a criminal um a criminal action where infectious diseases are used to harm people um and and that was a huge mental um, shift for people in public health. Some people wanted nothing to do with it. I was, I was very committed because actually our skills as epidemiologists, field epidemiologists, they, they could not be replicated anyplace else in, in the federal government. And so I, I felt really strongly that, that the expertise was in public health and it needed to be leveraged in response to the operator. Uh, well, you mentioned bioterrorism. It's something I haven't thought of in a long time, but is that something we're still prepared to address? Is it something that we should still be on high alert about? Um, yes, um, because, um, you know, the, the thing is, um, it's harder to do than you might think. Um, but scattered around the world, there's people that, that that could prepare anthrax. I mean, first of all, the bacteria is available in the environment. So if you have enough sophistication, you could isolate the bacteria. And um, it, it is possible to weaponize it in, in ways that can harm large numbers of people. Another job you had at the CDC was about innovation and strategy. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so I was the chief strategy and innovation officer for, for six years before I left CDC in 2009. So um, um, after the anthrax uh, investigation, I did something that was very countercultural at CDC. I went back and got my MBA, um, mostly because um, I felt like the the stakes were much higher for CDC and and although CDC had a very positive reputation in the United States and globally, um, it wasn't clear to me that it was being being run as well as it could be run because it was filled with people like me that had deep scientific knowledge and not filled with people that are are tremendously experienced running large organizations, um, you know, highly, highly efficiently. And so I went back, I got an MBA. It was really extremely interesting and, and um, ended up very, being very important for, for my future. Um, it was actually one of, the, one of the reasons I went back is because I, 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 I got a problem that I was working on in front of Bill Gates uh, right at the beginning of the, the Gates Foundation and um, got to see him solve the problem I had been unable to address with production of a vaccine for use in Africa. Um, I got to see him solve the problem 
in you know 20 minutes and then put the money behind it over the next 15 years to completely solve the problem that that I had been working on and and that happened you know around the same time and I thought well you know there's another reason why I need to go get another set of skills um, um, because you know CDC was fairly siloed in its its thinking and really was not very business and innovation friendly so, mm -hmm. so I was looking other places for those skills so that's what I did when I came back as head of strategy and and also tried to try to um try to um rationalize the CDC portfolio of activities um, to include these emergency responses, including bioterrorism and pandemics, but also not to neglect other opportunities to improve public health. And that's a challenge that, you know, I don't think I don't think anyone in public health, whether it's CDC, WHO, or or any other, is really resolved satisfactorily at this point. Well, tell me more about what you're doing at Carius beyond monkeypox testing. Yeah, so we're we are, you know, we're revolutionizing the way that we um, diagnose infectious diseases, particularly in people that are the most vulnerable to those infectious diseases, the immunocompromised uh, people, and this is really this is something that. Um, has been in development for, for decades, um, but Carius was founded in 2014, um, you know, through the collision of multiple different technologies that sort of all came together at the same time, progress in genomics, progress in, in computational power, progress in the availability of whole genome sequences of organisms, and then also the recognition of a very unique analyte in blood or, or plasma called cell-free DNA. And, and it's been used for lots of purposes. We use it because we can, among all the cell-free DNA, we can isolate um, the fraction of cell-free DNA that comes from microbes. And, and then when you've done that, you can, you can take the sample and put it directly on a sequencer. Um, create the digital output from the sequencer and then match that digital output to more than 1500 different um, microbes um, um, and then and then come back with an answer as to which infection this patient has. And this is so it includes viruses like monkeypox, but all the other DNA viruses includes bacteria, it includes fung fungal pathogens, and it includes parasites. And the world has never seen a test like this before. Um, and it identifies infections that are extremely poorly uh, identified um, at the present time using less sophisticated diagnostics. And it does it very fast. So we, we can do this in a 24-hour turnaround when many of these pathogens, if you used traditional means to identify them, would take weeks. Um, and so, um, um, 
it will likely revolutionize the way that we think about the diagnosis of infectious diseases. Well, how widely is it used now and, and how do you think it might change the health landscape? Well, we're, we're focused on, because again, um, immunocompromised people are, are most at risk for this wide range of different infections. And it's very difficult for doctors sometimes to tell which one they have because they don't react normally to these infections in many cases. Um, so we're focused initially on cancer patients and, and uh, patients that undergo solid organ transplant. And um, of course, you know, the, there's more immunocompromised patients than that, but, but that's where our initial focus is. And, and importantly, um, infections are a major cause of mortality in cancer patients. And in fact, about half of cancer patients don't die of their cancer. They die of an infection um, um, that's related to the cancer, but it's an infection nonetheless. And not only does it kill them, it prevents them from getting treatment for their underlying diseases, their underlying disease. So people, they get infected, you have to stop the cancer therapy. Same thing for solid organ transplants. So we think there's the biggest opportunity to make a difference in these populations. So we're working um, only with inpatients at this point, but we're working with, with um, more than 300 different hospitals in the United States health systems um, and, and uh, growing rapidly, um, mostly immunocompromised patients, both kids and adults. Thanks again to Dr. Perkins for joining me on Name Drop, and thank you for listening. If there's someone in the community you'd like to learn more about, drop me a line. I'm at christy.totten at sduniontribune.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y dot T-O-T-T-E-N at sduniontribune.com.